This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Kate Flanders. Now, Kate, a a described former binge consumer turned mindful consumer of everything. And through a lot of personal stories, she wrote about what happens when money, minimalism, and mindfulness mindfulness cross paths. Kate's story's been shared a lot of places, Oprah.com, Forbes, Yahoo, The Guardian. We're so happy to have you with us, Kate. It's just, oh, I'm really looking forward to this piece. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I just want to mention your blog address, uh, www.kateflanders.com, and Kate is spelt C-A-I-T. Now, Kate wrote a book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. I want to repeat that. Shopping (laughs) ban. Yikes. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish with her three loves, and I love this piece, Mountains, the Forest, and the Ocean. Nothing wrong about that. (laughs) Nothing wrong about that on this beautiful part of the country, for sure. So let's start with some questions about uh, The Year of Less, uh, the the title of the book that you wrote. Um, Often authors will talk about a a specific piece or a specific event or idea or thought that literally propelled them into the idea that I should write this down and it should be a book. How, How did that come about for you? Oh, like the actual book? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest and say that it was actually uh, never part of the plan. Like yeah. I, have, I have been blogging since 2011, and it, um, yeah, it was just never, never part of the plan to write a book. I used to write anonymously. Like when I first started my blog in 2011, I was maxed out with close to thirty thousand dollars of debt, and I wrote anonymously because I didn't want anyone to read it. Hmm. Um, that changed over time. Like after I'd paid off the debt, I felt much more comfortable, kind of. Um, using my real name and putting my face on the on the website, but I, um, you know, when I took on the shopping ban, it was still just very much meant to be like kind of a personal experiment that I was going to do. And it wasn't until after I finished it that um, I did an interview with someone I knew um, through a job, like years years before, and we. She actually wrote a profile about the piece for Forbes, which she was writing for at the time. And when the day it came out, she sent me an email saying, just FYI, these things have a tendency to go viral. (laughs) And I just thought nothing of it because, I mean, I didn't know Laura well, but I had worked with her for a little while. She was an editor of mine at one point. So I really thought nothing of it. And then within two weeks, I had been contacted by six different literary agents. Um, with all of them thinking it could be a book. So then I was just really grateful that I had documented some of it on the blog. And I think Blair, who I know, I I have not read your book, only because for no other reason than I just haven't, but Blair has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what a gift. Yeah, I was explaining to it to Elaine, I was traveling when I read the book, and, you know, it just really caused me to pause a bunch of times and, you know, ask myself th- those bigger questions about, you know, who am I consuming for? And, you know, what's, what's this, this benefit that I'm getting from all the consumption from it from a day to day? But I wonder for sharing with listeners here, Kate, can you tell us, you know, how did you structure, structure um, the rules about, about the shopping ban? 
Yeah, so uh, there were basically two or two lists that I wrote. Um, and so the first one was honestly like just we could call it consumables. Mm-hmm. So things like groceries, um, obviously putting gas in my car. So and the okay to buy stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, all this stuff's good to buy. So that stuff's okay. Um, even like going to restaurants sometimes, totally fine. Toiletries, like as you use them up, mm-hmm. totally fine. Like the things that you use often, you're allowed to buy like as you need more. So you don't have um, a closet full of toilet paper or paper towels, <laughs> that kind of thing, right? That's not part of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hoarding <No>. paper products. <laughs> no. Um, and then I wrote the list of things I was not allowed to buy. And that was structured basically from me walking around my home and looking at the stuff I already owned and really just saying, like, I have enough of this. So, I found that fascinating. Um, so what were some of the things on, on that list? Yeah. So, like, clothes, um, shoes, things for around the house, um, books, magazines. Like, I just... I had stuff. It's not even that I had a lot. I wouldn't have even sort of, I don't know, even if you'd walked into my home, it's not like it was a totally cluttered mess or anything. Like I just, I had enough. I didn't need more. Um, And then the only caveat to that was that I did write a short list, again, kind of looking ahead, knowing I was doing this for an entire year. Um, And I wrote this short list of a few things I would be allowed to buy throughout the year. And like an example was um, I had five weddings to attend that year. Okay. And I don't really own the kinds of clothes that I would wear to a wedding. Like I just don't really dress up ever. It's just not who I am. And so I was like, I can buy one outfit, so like one dress, one pair of shoes to wear to all of the weddings. Okay. Um, So some things like that. And you must have bought gifts for these people who got married? Yes, that was also, again, I never wanted the shopping ban to affect other people. Nice. Um, so that was also, that was fine. Yeah, because I guess you were trying to, to prove the point that, you know, the, the purpose of life, not to give away the book, but, you know, a lot of the, the enjoyment is not, not what you have to buy, not what you spend money on. Um, so I think one of your, your points here was you could do a shopping ban and actually have a more meaningful life than, you know, have your life suffer for that. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, and I think, like... It wasn't, um, or something I really want to say is like, I don't think buying stuff is bad or spending money is bad. And actually, I would almost really encourage us to kind of start removing some of the shame around the things that we are buying. Like, you guys know, personal finance is so personal. So we can't really judge like what people are spending money on. But I think inside, we know personally what we're getting fulfillment out of or not. And sometimes it is stuff. Like sometimes stuff really helps us with the things that we love. So, or or you just really like it. And like, if it's in your budget, that's okay. As long as you're using it. I think for me, it was just really realizing I had never questioned purchases. I just bought stuff thinking it would somehow help me or help my life in some way. And, and I just had to let go of that. Like I really had to learn how to sort of stop buying impulsively or also preemptively, like thinking I'm going to fix something in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, and just buy like when I've actually felt a need for something and then and then knowing it's for the real me and I'm actually going to use it. Is Was there a bit of a process that you went through like f- three questions or four questions that you asked yourself whether the piece stayed on the list or if you were ac- actually in the store and you were tempted to buy it? Like was there a bit of a process for you with each thing? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I for most things I just knew like if I kind of saw something and, or I found myself in a situation where I was thinking of buying something, I could pretty quickly talk myself out of it just being like, you don't need that. Like it's on the list. And I would also consider my blog too, being like, I don't want to have to write a blog post that says I 
gave in and I oh, responded. Good. So, so, <laughs> I'm not going to buy these things because I genuinely don't need it. And I don't want to tell anyone. Right. I'm not going to do it. That's excellent. <laughs> and uh, But no, I think that it, having accountability helped. I also think that there were some things like it did come back to if I had felt a need for it, like there were a couple things throughout the year that like life happens and you do need things. And it was just really coming to a place of learning how to say like, have I actually felt the need for this? Like, did I walk into the store for this thing or is something just making me think like, what kind of stories am I telling myself right now right. to maybe justify it? What about challenges, uh, challenges that you didn't expect to come up that did? Yeah. So I think the the big one and, and Blair will know this from reading is that, um, so something that, I'll just go backwards slightly and just say that something that um, I hadn't thought of before starting the band was that in the same time period that I was paying off my debt, I also stopped drinking. Mm. And I think that I had never really understood how, um, how much I used drinking as a coping mechanism for so many things. And then because it wasn't there, it's not that surprising to me that when sort of more personal challenges came up throughout the year of the shopping ban, it made me just want to spend because I knew I wasn't going to drink, but spending feels like the next easiest thing to do. And so I, I thought a lot about it. I went through a breakup that year and thought a lot about buying things that would just make me feel better. Um, And I also found out my parents were getting divorced that year. And that was a very, like, it was just a personal struggle, but in those situations definitely found myself, or just realized I was a much more emotional consumer than I had ever realized. And I really in, enjoyed re- reading the book, Kate, because it was it was not what I expected, as, as you just alluded to. It was more of a, a personal memoir, and really you fighting through a number of challenges. Um, and, you know, you and I spoke before the segment, but, you know, I quit drinking about four years ago, and I went through a lot of the same type of, um, you know, challenges that, that you were mentioning about. You don't have that as a coping mechanism anymore. Yeah, and it's so, I, I just think it's one of those things that it's not like every person who reads the book needs to have gone through our shared experience, but I think it it really just shows that, as, as unfortunate as it is, I think like money and, and all of this stuff, like it's a lot more emotional than we maybe would, would like, <laughs> like yeah. but, it, but it really is. And so there was so much that year that going through this stuff, I really realized I was an emotional consumer. I didn't have alcohol to help me anymore. And so spending just felt like what I like the the easiest and and sometimes doesn't feel that harmful like in the moment when you're going to make those decisions because it you know there's like science like it does feel good to spend money sometimes mm-hmm. and it does feel good like but that that it doesn't help long term and neither did drinking so right that's really quite something Kate that you that this was this was your journey that you went through and it started as one thing and evolved into something else i think that's really really fascinating well and i think for me now, I sort of look at personal challenges like that in general. Like it's, it's, um, you can never know what the end result is going to be. Like you just can't. And I am actually really glad that I walked into it a little bit blindly and almost like naively of just like, oh, this is just going to be this year where I, my goal is to like spend less and save more. Sure. Um, and, and finish it. And like, yes, I could say that those things were true, but it's, um, yeah, it, it, it did become about so much more than that. And I'm so grateful too that I was able to, like write the book that agents did see an interest in it and stuff like that because um, it's actually funny. I would say the majority of people wanted it to be more of like a how-to book, mm-hmm. something more of you know I don't know. Here's ten ways to do this. Um, but for me, I was 
always very adamant, like, if this is going to be a book, it has to be more of a memoir. Like, it has to be more personal. I don't want to just write, like, 10 ways to not shop. Like, no, I could could write that in a blog post. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's the other thing. You have the whole blog that you can, that you were able to use to sort of the daily stuff or the weekly stuff that would come up. Uh, so that, yeah, that makes good sense. And it just feels so personal. And the cool thing is, and I bet you've experienced this when you've heard from people, is that loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people have those same those same thoughts, those same ideas, that those same pauses uh, before either purchasing something or doing something that they know they're just doing to, I don't know, deal with this other thing that has nothing to do with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and like now a common thing I'm hearing from people is one part particular in the book where I just mentioned that I realized I used to buy a lot of things for this more like aspirational version of myself. Uh-huh. The number or like probably one of the most common things I hear from people is I had never realized that until I read that sentence. Excellent. Like that, that is what they were doing too. Very so. good. We've been talking with uh, Kate Flanders, who's written a really interesting book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish, so not very far away. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Dave Jones on the line with us. He's a chief constable of the New Westminster Police Department and has been since 2011. Has a very long and varied career uh, with the uh, police department, which is terrific. So he's got such a great base of knowledge and experience and information for us. We're calling this segment Tales from the Beat, examples of financial scams over the years. Dave, we're so happy and grateful that you can join us. I'm, I'm glad I can join you as well. That's great. So, so much good information um, that we want to give the listener uh, about financial scams, which seem to be growing in numbers in terms of what what is it trying to get at us these days, whether it be on the phone or via email. But there's a whole bunch of other areas, too, that we should pay attention to, which I uh, I think is really important. Yes, you're quite correct with that, that there is, uh, you know, quite the, I would say there's no limit as to what people will try these days in terms of separating you from your from your own money. Yeah, Dave, I wonder if we can talk through a, a couple examples, if the listeners will find it really interesting, if we can say, you know, here's a few of the types of scams that we've seen. I know in my job as a licensed insolvency trustee, I've seen, you know, various different types, whether it's a rental or romantic scam, you know, a debt relief scam quite often. Uh, what's something that you're seeing day to day that people are falling victim to? So yeah, the most thanks. The most recent one, of course, and we touched a bit on it before, was like the uh, Canadian Revenue mm-hmm. scam about owing money. Um, another one that is big, and we just we've seen really growing is the uh, romance, the dating scams. It's almost yeah. you know, and you've got to be very cautious about you know introducing or finding somebody online, and then never meeting the person who's suddenly you know asking you for funds to send to them. Um, an unfortunate one recently for us saw up to $70,000 in funds being transferred for somebody wow. from one individual to somebody who they had never met. 
Yeah, and, ju- and just pausing there. So to have $70,000 of funds to transfer, this was not someone who didn't have a net worth. This was someone who obviously had built up some financial resources. And that's what kind of shocked me um, in my in my work, Dave, is these were sophisticated individuals that were just taken advantage of by a very long-term kind of slow-moving con. Right. And, you know, they, the thing is, too, is that I, I'm not certain that every time when somebody's trying to con someone, they know exactly how much they have. But when they get into people, unfortunately, who are trusting offer up personal information that just seems to come out and have the ability to either access lines of credit or have actual funds sitting in somewhere. And, you know, and quite often it touches upon, you know, our, our more elderly population um, in, you know, in the communities here. Um, another one we saw, which is almost really unique uh, recently was, there's been one that touched upon, which I call it as a a video spying. It's almost an extortion. Mm. And what, what it has been said is, is that, there's emails going around that say we have video of you doing something inappropriate oh, and man. if you if you don't pay us then we will release this video out into you know into the cyberspace and we'll go after you in fact that hit one of the city employees recently who mm. you know quite right and rightly came to us and said what about this right so of course I hate to say it. Our first question is, <laughs> "Well, did you <laughs> did you do this type of behaviors that are described here?" Right? Yeah. You, know, that, you need to be honest with us, which they clearly hadn't. And then, of course, but it's that fear, right? Because yeah. people people start thinking, "Well, you know, does my laptop has mm. someone hacked my laptop camera or video, and do they have this on me?" Uh, in terms of it, so that's one. Another one uh, that's constantly makes around I call is the lost relative or the grandchild in jail. Oh right, I've seen um, this one. Yep. Yeah, there's a, there's a crisis, right? That's right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the it's the uh, you know, please don't tell my you know, please don't tell you know, hey, hi, grandma, it's so and so, and and the issue comes is that there's so much information that people post into different social media sites that it doesn't take isn't hard to sometimes figure out the name of a grandchild and the grandparent to actually, you know, be able to pull it on somebody and and be a bit more personal. And, you know, when they don't tell mom and dad, but I need money to get out of jail and you need to send the money to me, right? And at this, you know, and of course, I always say the suspicious thing is it's a wire transfer to another wire transfer. You know, it's not you need to send money to the police department or the justice Mm. center. You need to send money to this wire transfer place. Um, we see, you know, and picking on some of the more, I say, you know, unique ones at times is, um, you know, other than the lost relative, we see the phishing in terms of it, like online, using these government sites. And yeah, so the, can you describe the, the phishing? So that's you receive an email, it yeah. looks legitimate, but, yeah. you know, someone has essentially taken over the identity and if you click through it, you're not clicking through to who you think? That's right. So the phishing ones are somebody who gets access to email lists and then starts or just randomly starts firing out emails. And we used to see these, we would call them the, the oil scams in the past. You know, I've inherited, I have all this money, mm. I'm in a foreign country and I need your help to get the money out of the country type thing. And so those continue. And although, you know, that story gets told, that is now changed. And people are now saying, well, I'm with this company, you owe us money, um, or something's changed. Um, I use an example, and I would say is that, you know, uh, a television provider type company the other day even emailed myself and the police department saying, you need to go online and update your account because Mm. you're behind in arrears. And that was sent to my work email. Again. And, and I don't think the mayor wants to know that I've got satellite TV in my office, I think, right? So not having it was easy for me to say, 
I don't have anything at this email like this, so I could see it's a scam. But it looks really legit. It's right. using the company's brand, the company's logo, and that. And those are the ones that we still see are are going out there. And of course, uh, you know, other ones that we see and people have to be cautious about. I call it the online either rental bookings, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we, you can hear those horror stories of like twelve people renting the same suite that nobody right. that the person never even owned, yes. right? And so. When you've got this like low vacancy rate, and uh, you got people out there looking for a place to live, and are happy to find a place that's really reasonable, until, like I say, till six moving trucks show up on the same day, and oh, the wow. owner and the owners in the place going, this isn't for rent. Exactly, right? and they've all paid like two thousand yeah. dollars just to get an opportunity to get in to pay rent for the first time, or yeah, right. And and it's not just limited here. You know, we were just dealing with one too, where it's uh uh, online almost called vacation rentals, right? Yes. And, uh, and, and, and the caution I always use with people is, or we use is that, you know, there are very legitimate companies out there that you, you should, you know, you, that you should feel comfortable using that are well-established and good records as opposed to, and I don't mean to ever knock new startups or people are doing it, but you need to be a bit, lot more diligent in checking them out before you start sending them large sums of money in advance. Um, we just have another one that hit our offices, which is about $10,000 worth of vacation rentals in, in another country, which leaves it very difficult for us mm-hmm. to even conduct an investigation because it, it, this transaction occurred overseas. Right. You know, how, how we're going to track someone down who doesn't exist in reality, it becomes very challenging. But a, but a caution to that person was, in talking to them was, if they had done a little bit of research online, it didn't take much using a search to find that this company, there is lots of conversation in the internet about this company doing this and being involved in this type of behavior. So um, there are ways for people to, to be certain about what they're doing. And, and we've always said, if it sounds too good, then it's probably not real, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, is there a is there a place, or you know, would you recommend? So, I'm I'm concerned about uh, any of the ones that we talked about. Is there like a set of criteria that you think is really important for people, like one, two, and three, to make sure they do before they sign on or send the money? Yep. Or, yeah, what is so, it? So, the first thing is, if anyone's asking you to send them money, you should stop. Right? You should you should not do it on the basis of them contacting you. You should always, if you believe there might be some legitimacy to it, you should look it up yourself. Okay. In other words, don't ask for a phone number or contact from them or right. reply to the email provided. You should look it up yourself. In Independent. Terms of it. Okay. Independently. Second of all, depending on whether you feel comfortable with neighbors or family or friends, or if not, call the police department and ask them if they've had issues with this, right? And uh, we do have people who will call in and ask about even today's world, the CRA scam. And we're more than happy to tell them that this is a scam that's going on, right? And for any CRA people who didn't get their money back, um, then they can call us, right, in terms of it. But yeah. but we are very, you know, clear. And there are online centers, like the Canadian Anti-Fraud online as well, too, the center, the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, Great. that can give you advice and even take in the information that you've got who try to monitor the variety of scams and things that are going on throughout the country. Excellent. We've been talking with Dave Jones, Chief Constable of the New Westminster Police Department, with some great information on financial scams and how to avoid them. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. 
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, you may or may not be one of the many, many people who fall into the trap of making only minimum payments when your credit card bill shows up in the mail. Uh, And then there's the group that not only do that, but then the assumptions made that you're actually making some progress on that bill. And that's why this segment is called Minimum Payment Math. Mm -hmm. So Blair, first off, um, can you explain how credit card minimum payments are even calculated? Yeah. So, you know, Elaine, you you were saying, you know, there's a number of people that, you know, fall into the trap of making minimum payments. Thankfully, it's not the majority. So about 80% of people in Canada, they pay off their balances every month on their credit card. So, you know, that's a positive thing. And credit is not necessarily an evil thing if you pay it off every single month. You know, you might get some rewards points, you you know, if you're, you might protect yourself with some extra extended warranties and that. But what can really happen is if you're just focused on making that minimum payment, oftentimes you're not getting ahead. And and to no fault of your own, right? Because it's stated very clearly on the line, you know, this is this is what your debt is, or this is what the your credit is at this point. This is how much credit you have left, and your minimum payment is this. Yeah, it's like this is all you need to do to be good. Perfect. Yay. Thank you, Mr. Bank. (laughs) Not well well, exactly because the minimum payment, you know, when you look into it how it's actually calculated, it's very much to the bank's benefit. And, you know, from your point of view, it looks attractive because if all you do is pay the minimum payment, you know, your credit rating doesn't take a hit. You're being compliant with everything that you're supposed to do every month. But let's talk about how the minimum payments are actually calculated yeah. because it does vary by different banks. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes it can even be different across a different card at, at the same bank. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, here's a little insider tip too. Your credit history does matter even determining which cards you're offered and at what prices. So minimum payments could be different based on your credit history. Okay. But, you know, typically a minimum payment is somewhere in the range of one to two and a half percent um, of the balance on your credit card. And let's think about that for a second. One to two percent. A lot of credit cards are, you know, 20 percent a year. So one or two percent on a monthly basis, that's barely going to cover the interest in a lot of cases. Oh, and sometimes it doesn't even do that, right? I mean, we could have a minimum payment that doesn't even cover the the interest that's charged. You could, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I looked uh, in depth at at one of the largest Canadian banks and looked at how they calculate um, their minimum payments. And I can call it out Royal Bank because it's right on their website how they calculate their payments is it's your charges, you know, it's the fees, um, it's any other interest costs on top of it, and $10. So what you're actually contributing to bring your balance down every month is $10 if you're just paying the minimum payment. So you can imagine a debt of any size, you're not getting out from under it if you're just making the minimum payment. Even even if even if your debt is only $1000, let's say, right? Yeah. I mean, it would still take a long time to pay that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um you've talked we've talked before in segments about banks need and this is kind of a, neat, a new thing that they need to point out the impact of making only minimal payments. Or at least I think when I when I saw that question, I thought, okay, that's that little box where they mm-hmm. say if you only paid the minimum yeah. payment, then it would take you, you know, 5,000 years to pay off, <laughs> pay off this debt. Not yeah. really exaggerated, a little there. Um, so, but what... What do they have to do? What does a bank have to do? Well, you hit it right on the head, Elaine. This is something that banks, they weren't the ones leading the charge to do this. You know, banks weren't rushing out there saying, we think people don't understand that they're paying too much in credit card interest. We want to make it easier on them. Yeah, you're richer (laughs) than you think. Anyway, um, but no, this was, you know, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, and this is a requirement that dates back to 2010 now. Which um, isn't that long ago. Yeah, and and it's really taken a while for people to even notice because a lot of the time, even with my clients, if they feel like they're just hopelessly in debt, they even stop opening the statements. They don't look too 
closely at them. They just really feel like they've got an issue and that's that. Yeah. Um, but the law requires that in clear language and a clear font, now it could be at different places on the statement. I've seen it, you know, buried in the footer almost. Uh, but the credit card companies have to tell you exactly how long it will take you to fully repay the balance if only the minimum payment is made each month. So that's the very least that the bank can do as far as I'm concerned, is, yeah. <laughs> is give you that information. Yeah. So those $10 that you're those ten dollars that you're giving them each month, it'll take you till you know twenty fifty yeah. to pay this off. Bad man. Yeah. So that, and there's almost nobody I meet with that's not just shocked when they look closely at that. You know, even a small amount of debt. You know, small is a relative term, but even a few thousand dollars, you're in the years, sometimes yeah. in the decades, to get out of it. And I know we've got some examples today. We're going to look at. Yeah, let's do that. So low interest credit card. First of all, mm-hmm. uh, let's say you've got a five thousand dollar balance. Uh, you've got a, almost a twelve percent interest rate. Mm-hmm. So let's work that out. Yeah, you know, eleven point nine on a low interest card is is pretty standard, and this is a card that you'll get if you've got a really good credit rating. So not everybody's going to be able to access a low rate card, but some people will. Exactly. I've never seen eleven point nine percent interest rate on a credit card. Yeah, and it, I, and I'm pretty good paying yeah. my bills pretty fast. But and, still. and you'll often find these aren't the cards that are advertised in a big way because obviously they're less profitable for for the banks. Okay. But you've got a $5,000 balance, which, you know, is a lot, but mm-hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't seem like this insurmountable mountain of debt. Right. You've got a relatively low rate interest card um, and you're going to make the minimum payments. It's going to take you 14 years and seven months. Let's say that again, 14 years and seven months on a low rate card to get out of $5,000 of debt. That's crazy. 14 yeah. years, a lot can happen in 14 years. Yeah. And this is the other piece. So if you're if you're starting with, and that's if you don't add anything onto that balance too, yeah. right? That's just free. It's yeah. 5,000. That's what it's sticking for 14 years. So $5,000 balance, but the interest paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in this case, it's almost half of the debt. It's $2,400, give or take a few dollars. Um, that's your interest cost. So when people come in to me, they say, I know I've paid this debt off multiple times over the years. I look at them and say, yeah, you probably had yeah. with a high interest rate card. So let's look at the standard credit card, mm-hmm. pretty much the one that we all have. I mean, I, like yeah. again, I don't know who gets a low interest rate credit card, but yeah. the standard one is 18.9% interest. Mm-hmm. So same amount in our balance, $5,000 balance. Yep. We have went from 14 years to almost 20 years, 19 years and nine months to get out from under a $5,000 debt, just making the minimum payments. And our interest cost in this point, in this case, actually exceeds the value of the debt. So we're going to pay $5,300 of interest on a standard credit card doing what everyone says, you know, it's important, make the minimum payments. Credit rating is going to be fine, but you've paid more than 100% of that debt over time. And it's taking you a good part of your working life to do so. Exactly. So retail store credit cards. Now, this surprises me. You're you're giving it a 29.9% interest rate. Yeah. I'm not that I'm doubting you, yeah. but not all retail stores have that high of an interest rate, or do they? Well, some are higher. Really? <laughs> I've, really? I've seen 34, 35. Is that right? Uh, but yeah, most store credit cards that I've seen are in, in the high 20s or so. But yeah, you might find some that are similar to a standard um, credit card, especially if it's a broader card that's accepted at other places. Oh, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, most store credit cards are in the range of the 29% mark. Wow. Okay. So yeah. we're almost at 30% interest rate, mm-hmm. 5000 balance. How long is it going to take you to pay that off? Well, from when you start working to when you retire, it's going to take you 50 years, five, zero years and four months. And you would have paid, get this, Elaine, you would have paid $23,000 in interest on a $5,000 debt. That's just crazy. So if folks are listening, I, I hope you realize these, are, you know, these aren't extreme examples. This is what I see people every day. They're just carrying balances. They're making minimum payments and they're really getting no further ahead. 
Okay, so we're all about solutions on mm-hmm. on this show, dollars and cents. What can we do or what can we consider at least when it comes to minimum payment math? Well, a couple of things are, are pretty basic. So, you know, first off is really think twice about putting down the plastic. Um, you know, there's something to be said for spending cash because you feel the physical pain of, of handing over $50 or $100 or something like that. And it's done. And, and it's done. And, and the payment is made. And that's exactly. what I like about cash. Yeah. Not that I use it all the time, but that's what I like about it. It's done. Yeah. So if you're going to use a credit card for your purchases, the advice is to make sure you've got the cash socked away to pay it off at the end of the month. Okay. If you're part of the 80% of people that pay off the balances each month, then they're not making money off you. You know, you again, you may even be getting some benefits, but it's yeah. when you start to carry the balance, that's the issue. So use the card knowing that it's not a means of carrying a balance. It's, you know, essentially a charge card that you pay off every single month. Yeah. And, and and they are convenient. There's no doubt about it. I mean, credit mm-hmm. cards can get used for things that are, it's just very convenient. It makes sense. But the key is to have that money exactly. somewhere that yep. then you can pay it off. Yep. Now, this is interesting. You're suggesting that we be wary of rewards programs. Yeah. And what, why is that? Because I always thought they were a good thing. Well, and, and definitely from a marketing point of view, they're great because they got us excited about cards and air travel and different things like that. Um, but you've really got to do the risk reward analysis because at best, the best cards out there typically are around one percent of your spend you know sometimes in a range on different categories but most of the time it's one percent of your spend if you're putting something on credit and your interest rate is 19 percent a year every month you're paying more than one percent in interest so if you're putting something on credit just to get the points but you're not going to pay it off for four or five months got it you've really put yourself further behind Okay. You know, that's part of it is, you know, don't get lured in by, by, by the points and spend sure. more than you should. But the other point too is upon redeeming for travel, there's all these costs, there's charges. A lot of times people will overextend themselves saying it's a free flight, but it still costs me $400. Well, that's the thing. You yeah. really have to pay attention, especially with air travel. Yeah. The, the tax is just crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, we use uh, the air miles or the air points, mm-hmm. depending on what airline. And then you got to pay the tax. Yeah. Like you might get the flight, but it's the tax could be six, seven, eight hundred dollars. Exactly, depending yeah. on the destination, it can be almost as much as a standard ticket would be, which is just shocking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. It yeah. totally is. Uh, cash advances. I've often been tempted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, just say no. But yeah, <laughs> I do, I don't do it because yeah. I I'm just afraid to. <laughs> that's probably the worst deal that's out there in terms of ac- access to credit. Um, so cash advances. The minute you take that money out, they start to hit you with interest. And the whole point of a credit card is that you make the purchase and you get some interest-free grace period that when you get the bill in, you normally get 21 days to pay. And if you pay it off, you don't pay any interest. As soon as you take money out of a machine for a cash advance, they're hitting you with interest. And usually it's their highest interest at that point. Um, Sometimes there's even a special interest on cash advances that's a little bit higher than your standard rate. So on the 11.9% card, there's probably a higher cash advance interest if you started using it for cash advances. Got it. Okay. So you really have to read the fine print Mm -hmm. to know what the cash advance interest rate is on a card. Yeah. And one that got me when I, I was, you know, relatively new in, in, in my career. And I thought, oh, gee, I can just, you know, get some cash here. It's relatively cheap on a low card, but there's often a transaction cost. Yes. Sometimes it's one to 3% of the total amount that you're taking out. So you can imagine you're going to pay interest right away. You're going to pay a transaction cost of one to 3%. Um, there better be a really good reason why you immediately need that money because it's very expensive. Yeah. Depending on where you're going, especially if you're traveling, I've learned that lesson yeah. or we've learned that lesson that I think, oh, well, that should be easy. If we need cash because sometimes mm-hmm. that's the only thing that is uh, available or if you need to make a transaction or pay for something you need cash well let's just take it out on the card and I get this look like are you kidding me <laughs> <laughs> do you know what that means yeah. the other thing is that this surprised me that the interest is charged from the day you take the money yeah, yeah. that's 
really. No grace period. No grace period at mm-hmm. all. And and then the special interest rates. Have we sort of covered that already, or is there more that we need to pay attention with well, the special interest rates? Yeah, I think just be careful. If you start to miss payments or go over your limit, uh, your interest rate can increase very significantly. Okay. It's so important, you know, to read the fine print, take a look at what you've got, take a look at what you've already signed up for. Um, and if you're, if you are in a bind or if you know that you're in trouble, you have an exceeding, you know, your debt is growing, uh, the best place to go, the best guy to talk to, uh, go see Blair at uh, Sands and Associates, any of his staff. They have wonderful, wonderful people, nice and easy to do. Check out their website, lots of good information there, sands-trustee.com, or nice and easy as well as calling them at 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation and to find an offer. Near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. This surprised me, Blair, this statistic. Mm -hmm. You said four in 10 couples, which is almost half of all couples who are married or in a common law relationship, say they brought debt with them into the relationship. Yeah, so not quite a majority, but definitely a very strong, strong demographic. Almost a lot 50%. of people. Well, but that's our life, right? The fact of life is just about everybody is in debt these days. You know, whether it's a student loan, whether it's a little credit card balance or something like that, uh, you're in the minority if you're debt free, from my point of view. Yeah. So I guess, and the good news about that is, I think, is that one of the things that happens with people who are in debt feel really alone and isolated and all that. And that's the good news is that you're not. No. no, Not alone at all. You're absolutely not. Um, You know, even you might be a far, far shade away from ever having to go bankrupt or do a consumer proposal. But almost everybody at some point in their life will find themselves with a little bit of debt and have to decide, you know, how do I get myself out of this? Excellent. And when you're dealing with a couple, uh, what I want to do in today's segment is really point out, you know, some really key things. Maybe there are some assumptions people make, and if they're longtime listeners of ours, Elaine, they know some of these things already, uh, but there's some assumptions people make when they when they start to couple up and combine finances that sometimes are to their detriment, and the facts are actually a little bit different than what some people assume. And I think the other piece of it, too, is a lot of these things that we're going to talk about uh, don't necessarily just pertain to new people, to mm-hmm. new couples, but if they're there's something that you hear that we talk about and you go, oh, I don't think that exists in my relationship. That might be something to think about, Mm -hmm. way to introduce it. Yeah, because, you know, definitely, and this is uh, true for couples as well as individuals, debt is a source of stress. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's not a source of peace and calm and things like that. You know, if you owe money, it's an obligation. And the more obligations you have, especially if you can't meet them, that's when your stress level starts to go up. And some research that that we've done um, is, you know, one in three couples um, feel that debt is a major source of their stress. So, you know, two thirds don't, but a solid one third um, debt is something that, you know, maybe they're fighting about or feeling despondent about. That's the other thing. And we know that stress can look uh, all kinds of ways, especially in a relationship. So let's talk about a couple of things to do. 
I love this one. Communicate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get accused of communicating too much. Oh. <laughs> I'm teasing. And I get the opposite. So, <laughs> there, you <laughs> so, go. so there you go. Sort of a yin and a yeah. yang of it. But especially with money, the communication discussion around money, especially the first few, it's never easy. No. Uh, because people come from very different backgrounds, very different levels of financial literacy, and also very different you know, opinions about, shall we say, what's polite conversation and what's not. And how even the couple is set up in terms of who's making who's mm-hmm. making more money yeah. than the other person. I mean, sometimes that that's the case, and sometimes not. Sometimes everybody's making the same amount. Mm-hmm. But I would say there's probably always a difference, right? Yeah, it's very rare that you find somebody perfectly fifty fifty. And two doctors, two lawyers, two yeah, dentists. It does maybe. exist, but it's yeah. a minority. Right. Um, but you know, a lot of times there is a mismatch, and sometimes one member of the couple can think, well, you know, if the other person's earning ninety percent of the of the income, let me just let them worry about everything and plan everything out and I don't really need to be involved in things. Yeah. Um, and that can be incredibly risky, especially if you know it's a long-term couple and then one of the partners passes unexpectedly. And if you're the person who's never paid attention to anything, you can have a real challenge even trying to pick up the pieces and administer an estate. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the uh, stereotypical 1950s version is the man is making all the money and no. the woman is at home making, you know, doing all the domestic stuff. That just isn't the case anymore and hasn't yeah. been for a long, long time. Oh, yeah, so more and more, it's it's the the inverse that the, yeah. the, the female is is doing a little bit better. Yeah, you know? so it's not gender specific at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second piece of that is the honesty with your partner about the financial situation, and and that can be a tough one, especially if you've been together for a long time. Yeah, not just a new amount of time or you know a short amount of time, but a long time. Yeah, this one, and this is something, you know, we recommend every couple does, and definitely, um, you know, I, I think it is easier earlier on, um, but it's if you really want to share some financial intimacy, um, is each of you pull your credit reports, and mm. you can do this for free. We've got links on our website at okay. sandstrustee.com. Um, pull your credit reports and sit down and review them both together. And then you're looking, I'm going to assume, at apples and apples and oranges and yeah. oranges, right? Yeah, the formats are going to be the same. You're going to see all the accounts, you know, reporting there, and if you've been honest and straight forward with the other person, there's going to be no surprises for each of you. And then what you're going to see is, okay, here's what we're dealing with. Now, another big benefit too, is I've rarely seen a credit report that doesn't have at least one inaccuracy. So probably as added benefit of this is both you and your partner are going to figure out, hey, there's a weird address here. There's a weird job. You know, there's a weird account. Let's get this thing cleaned up before it potentially causes us problems a little bit later. Okay. And so it is important to have um, a really accurate credit report. Yeah. It's, it's your record of your financial life. Uh, financial life. And it does matter because it determines, you know, are you going to be able to get um, financing and at what rate, but it's something that changes over time. So even if somebody's got a very poor credit rating or you get their credit report and it's a bunch of, you know, delinquencies and skipped out on this and so on and so forth, at least you know what base you're building from and you can turn it around from there. People can literally go from horrible credit, you know, going through a bankruptcy and everything like that to turning things around and getting a mortgage in as little as a couple of years, two to three years. Right. And so nothing's, yes. nothing's a life sentence when it comes to credit. Okay. And more than you and I are going to be looking at it if we're married. It's mm-hmm. something that other people can access before they give us a hand with oh, something. Oh, of course. You're going to finance a vehicle or ask for more credit somewhere. Yeah, they're going to they're going to do a credit check on you. So, you know, we really encourage it relatively early on in a relationship is, you know, let's put all the cards on the table. But even if you've been together for years and neither of you have ever pulled your credit, um, do it and see, is it accurate? And then also share both reports together. See, and that's the other thing too, as you mentioned, that the, there's always inaccuracies in those reports. Yeah. And it's really important to get it cleaned up. Because yeah. if there's a bunch of stuff that just isn't true, I 
either period or any more, then yep. that's worth the time. Well, and the time to clean it up is not when you're at the mortgage broker's office ready to sign the documents, because I've had those calls and I've said, yeah, you can send in an inquiry, but you know, I'm not the credit bureau's client and neither are you. It's the banks. They're not going to jump when, when we call them. So it's going to take probably weeks to get something cleared up. Okay. You need to make sure you leave enough time, not, you know, the 11th hour before something has to be signed. One of the, and the third, the third one on the do part of the, of the conversation is understand what you owe and what you don't owe. What do you mean by that? Well, so this is what we were alluding to a little bit earlier, Elaine, is, you know, a lot of people think if you marry somebody, you marry their debt. And, you know, if, I, if I've married somebody that got a massive student loan, if I've got some money, why don't I just help and pay down that student loan? We're better off as a couple. Mm-hmm. The facts are, legally, there's no automatic liability. So repeat again, if you marry somebody, you do not owe their debts at all. So if somebody's got a MasterCard or Visa debt, MasterCard or Visa can never collect from the other spouse. They can only collect from the person that originally borrowed the money. And I've seen so many couples sit down and just start to pool their finances right away. And sometimes they'll you know, have one person with a bunch of debt and one person with a bunch of assets, and they'll end up at zero because the one person used all their assets to pay the debts. Whereas if they knew that you know the other person with the assets is not liable for this debt whatsoever, the person who has all the debt might have done a consumer proposal, might right. have paid back a third of the debt or a quarter of the debt, or maybe bankruptcy was the answer for them to get them back to zero. But the couple as a whole, the partner who had the assets is not required to surrender them or compromise their stability um, to provide for the other partner for debt that's brought into the relationship. That's a really important piece, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, you know, one other side of this, and you know, this is if a relationship is breaking up, then there can be some liability for joint debt. So you'd want sure. to, you know, talk to a lawyer and things if you're going through that tough situation. Right. But absolutely, if you owe somebody money and you get into a relationship, it does not become owed by the other spouse. Now, two things that you say you shouldn't do, and we just have about a minute left. Yeah. Uh, playing the blame game. Don't play the blame game. Nothing to be gained, right? (laughs) If you just increase the guilt, increase the shame the other person is already feeling, all you're going to do is guarantee that the next time there's a very touchy situation, they're probably not going to want to even discuss it with you. I think marriage counseling is probably the next best step in that particular situation. That would make sense. Yeah, these are universal. Bad, right? Such a bad thing to do. And um, the second piece of it, suffer alone or in silence. Yeah, there's, there's help out there. So don't suffer alone. Don't think you're the only person or the only couple that's experiencing these situations. Any licensed insolvency trustee will meet with you at no charge for a consultation and can work out a plan that's going to help you as a unit be better off. I can't help stress, too, with uh, Sands & Associates' website. It's so good, sands-trustee.com. There's so much good information, a lot of frequently asked questions, scenarios, situations that you can look up. My my bet is that you're going to see yourself in some of those places uh, when you start going through it. And then if you feel like, no, I need to talk to somebody, it's nice and easy to do. 1-800-661-3030 to get that first free consultation, uh, as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.